to the Archbridge Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Ben Wilterdink, your host and director of programs at the Archbridge Institute. And today's episode is a special edition podcast featuring my conversation with Scott Winship, where we talk about his latest research and trends in economic mobility in the United States. The event was originally live streamed on November 30th, 2021, and in it, Scott outlines the key findings of his new paper, answers some of my questions, and finally takes a few questions from the audience. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And remember, the full paper can be read at archbridgeinstitute.org, and you can sign up for our monthly newsletter to keep up with all things economic mobility. Thank you. Okay, well, it looks like we've got a good number of people here, so I think we can go ahead and uh, and get things kicked off here. Uh, so first off, thanks again for joining us, uh, everyone, today. Scott, I appreciate having you here. Uh, my name is Ben Wilterdink, and I'm the Director of Programs for the Archbridge Institute. Uh, we are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization focused on removing barriers to upward economic mobility. Uh, and I'm really happy to have you on today, Scott. So I'll give kind of a brief bio. I think a lot of people are, are probably familiar with who you are and, and some of your work, but just in case there are a few who aren't, um, Scott is a senior fellow and the director of poverty studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, before joining AEI, uh, Scott served as executive director of the Joint Economic Committee, where he created the Social Capital Project under Chairman Mike Lee. Before that, Scott has been actively researching poverty and economic mobility for quite a while now, uh, working at institutions such as Manhattan Institute, the Brookings Institution, and the Pew Charitable Trusts. His work has been published and shared very widely. Uh, so today, Scott will be talking a bit about his new paper for the Archbridge Institute, which is the third installment in a state-of-the-art primer series uh, on economic mobility. And so this paper focuses on trends in economic mobility in the United States. So Scott, thanks for joining us. And uh, with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to you to give some uh, opening remarks. Great, thanks so much, Ben. Um, thanks to everybody uh, for, for attending. Um, definitely some familiar names on the, uh, in the participants list. Um, I especially want to thank the Archbridge Institute um, for generously funding this research. Um, I, I signed a contract with them to write three papers uh, back in uh, fall of 2016. Um, and uh, not only have they been generous, but they've been very patient. Each of the three papers has ended up being individually, uh, you know, maybe the three toughest papers I've, I've ever had to write. So the, a lot has gone into them. Um, just as a little bit of background, uh, part one um, of, of this primer was really about trying to uh, uh, assess um, the most accurate levels of intergenerational mobility in the United States. Um, each of these papers has tried to be pretty comprehensive, looking at relative mobility, absolute mobility, looking at men and women, um, uh, uh, looking at, at, at various measures, whether they're, they're kind of distributional measures, um, where you can look at where people start and where they end, or whether they're kind of summary measures where you know, mobility is summarized in a single number. So they've each tried to do all that. Part one uh, was about levels. Um, and, and I've kind of thought about these papers as being in conversation with a bunch of, um, of, of fantastic mobility researchers. Um, I would say in part one, I, I kind of reinforced um, uh, the results of uh, Bosch Mazumder. Um, many of you know at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Uh, who has basically argued for years now that that mobility levels um, are much lower than we we thought even in the in the recent past. Um, it, sort of reinforcing his results as against um, the results of Raj Chetty and his team who, who found much higher levels of mobility using tax data. 
you can go back to that paper and, and uh, there's a discussion of that. But I but I found very uh, low levels of mobility relative um, to, to what past research has found. In part two, I, I looked at cross-national comparisons focused on the U.S., but, um, but assessing where the U.S. stands in, in relation to other countries. That paper, I would say, kind of complicated the results of some major mobility scholars, including Mazumder, uh, including Miles Korak, including Marcus Yanti. Uh, in that, I found that if you're comparing uh, sons and daughters to their parents' earnings, that you're comparing their earnings to their parents' earnings, the U.S. actually doesn't look too bad versus uh, versus other countries um, uh, by measures of sort of rising out of the bottom fifth or bottom fourth or falling from the top fourth. Uh, we look, actually look very comparable to other countries, um, even Denmark. You know, uh, uh, land or so and, and Heckman are on the are are, are participating. Um, uh, surprising paper from them, but it really sort of reinforced uh, a bunch of other research that was kind of hiding uh, in plain view um, that showed. On earnings mobility, U.S. not looking as bad as other other countries. Family income mobility, um, it, it, it looks like the U.S. does have uh, less intergenerational mobility, mobility than other countries. And now this one uh, is part three, which is looking at trends in the United States. Um, and I would say this one uh, sort of challenges the results uh, of Mazumder, who has claimed uh, in a few papers that um, that intergenerational mobility has worsened in the United States um, or or fallen in the United States. Um, I, I, I don't find that at all. And I, I spent a lot of time kind of critiquing some of his papers uh, that you can read about uh, in, in the report. Um, and I would say it also complicates uh, the results of Raj Chetty and his team, um, you know, who have argued that there have been these big declines in absolute mobility over time, whether you exceed the income of your parents or not. And I argue, uh, I find in my paper that essentially those trends are flat. I argue, you know, that, that the truth is probably somewhere in between. Um, and we can get to that in a second. Um, so let me just try to very quickly run through uh, a bunch of the main results. The paper, um, you know, the bulk of it is discussing long-term trends in mobility using a couple of, of different data sets, the panel study of income dynamics um, and the national longitudinal surveys, uh, which both allow you to sort of go back to birth cohorts that were born uh, in um, uh, circa 1950. Um, and you can look uh, as recently as birth cohorts who were born in the early 80s, you know, who are now in, in sort of early adulthood, um, approaching middle age today. Um, uh, there are also appendices that discuss longer term trends. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about that here, um, but one of them has does have a, a very extended critique of, uh, of an important paper by Aronson and Mazumder from 2008, um, where I argue that, that their results probably are are. Are, are not sufficiently reliable that we ought to uh, really bank on, on their conclusion that, that mobility has fallen in the United States. Okay, so just very quickly, um, I'm just gonna run through trends looking at uh, men's earnings mobility, women's earnings mobility, uh, and then men's and women's family income mobility. Um, for men's earnings mobility, comparing father uh, earnings to son earnings, I would say the, the headline there is relatively little change over time. Um, I look at uh, something called the uh, Income Rank Association, um, which Chetty and his team call the rank rank slope, uh, the, the Spearman rank uh, correlation coefficient, same thing. That was that was similar in the PSID, whether you're looking at birth cohorts from 1952 to 59 or birth cohorts from 1976 to 1983. Um, it went from about 0.36 uh, for the earlier cohort to 0.32 
change was not statistically significant. What those numbers mean essentially is that, you know, the if you start out with the richest and poorest kids in childhood um, who are separated by almost 100 percentiles um, in, in childhood, by the time they become adults, um, they were separated by about 36 percentiles um, typically um, for those 1950s cohorts. By the late 70s, early 80s cohorts, they were separated by 32 percentiles. So, you know, uh, 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 an increase in mobility, um, but but again, probably not sufficiently robust that, uh, that, that we would conclude that there has been an increase in mobility over time based on that. If you look at downward, if you look at mobility uh, from the bottom uh, fourth or, or, or from the top fourth, um, downward mobility from the top fourth looks to have increased uh, quite a bit. Um, in the earliest cohorts, about 50% of uh, sons uh, who started in the top fourth um, uh, fell um, from the top fourth. Um, uh, by the most recent cohorts, that was 69% instead of 50%. Um, upward mobility from the bottom fourth may have fallen, um, but that change wasn't statistically significant. Uh, the intergenerational elasticity, which is, you know, for the wonks out there, no, is, is the one that was really getting the measure that was getting the most attention for, for years up until recently. Um, that is essentially the regression coefficient when you regress the log of son earnings on the log of father earnings. It's just a regression coefficient. It, it largely tells you the percentage change, the, the percentage difference between two sons uh, that you would expect in adulthood given a 1% difference in their, their father's earnings in childhood. That uh, went from 0.32 to 0.31, um, which is not statistically significant, so no change there. Um, exceeding your father's earnings, this was kind of the most recent uh, Chetty paper, um, whether you make more than your father at the same age, that probably declined, um, but I argue that it's it's been less than what the Chetty team found. In, in my results um, in the PSID, uh, for the early cohort, about 47% of sons exceeded their father's earnings in adulthood. Um, for the most recent cohort, that actually increased to 50%. Um, that's not statistically significant, but the Chetty numbers um, go from something like 61% down to 42%, so a pretty big decline. Now, what's what's the difference between those? Well, I argue in the paper um, that it's not so much a difference in methods or data sets, um, although there are there are very big differences in, in methods. Um, but the real difference is is in terms of when each of us are measuring uh, father earnings. Um, I measure them in adolescence um, because that's when I see them in, in the data sets I'm using. The Chetty team anal uh, measures them roughly around age 30. Um, so you can think of it as being closer to when to when uh, sons are typically born. And that makes a difference because earnings were rising so fast in the 1950s and in the and in the 1960s too. Um, th that essentially the bar for exceeding your father's earnings gets a lot higher to clear um, if if you're uh, uh, if, if you're looking at uh, for, for that early generation when incomes were rising, um, the bar is is easy to clear when you're looking at um, father earnings around the time that these early uh, birth cohorts were born um, versus if you look at their father's earnings when the kids are adolescents. And the fathers have already experienced um, an earnings increase in between in between uh, those years. Um, that's a higher bar for kids um, uh, to, to to pass. And so uh, I tend to find that for the earliest cohorts, absolute mobility was lower um, than what the Chetty team finds because 
because again, the Chetty team is sort of comparing grown sons to their parents before their fathers experienced these big earnings earnings gains. Um, and I and I show in the paper uh, why I believe that that's the explanation. I think it's a pretty compelling um, uh, explanation. And so I conclude that if we if we had lifetime or sort of childhood um, uh, over over full childhood earnings of fathers, um, you'd probably still find that absolute mobility has declined over time, contrary to my results. But but the decline would not be as large as the Chetty team uh, has has found in their results. Um, okay, earnings mobility for women. A um, little more complicated, but probably a little change over time. Um, the, the income rank association uh, comparing mothers and daughters earnings may have risen. Um, it went from 0.06 to 0.19 in the PSID. Uh, but if you drop uh, women who don't have any earnings, um, which is much more important if you're looking at women than it is for looking at men, um, then the increase is only from 0.16 to 0.21, and it's not statistically significant anymore. Um, if you, uh, it looks like upward mobility from the bottom fourth to the top fourth uh, fell um, uh, from about 29% for the early cohorts to about 10%. Um, but after dropping zeros, um, upward mobility out of the bottom fourth may have actually risen um, from 64% to 74%, although that's not statistically significant either. Um, so, so you, you sort of bump up against these, these complicated stories. Um, the IGE may have increased over time, which would suggest declining mobility um, versus uh, daughter's earnings versus their father's earnings. That went from 0.09 to 0.27 um, over these cohorts. Um, that's a pretty large increase, but it's not statistically significant in my data. Versus mothers, um, the IGE went from 0.08 only to 0.12, also not significant. Um, exceeding father earnings. Um, became likelier for daughters. Um, that went from about 17% of daughters exceeding their father's earnings um, uh, to about 25% over time. Uh, the Chetty team finds a flat trend in contrast. And I, again, I think the difference there is, is about when we're measuring parental uh, earnings. Um, if you compare daughter earnings to their mother's earnings, um, they became less likely to exceed their mother's earnings over time. Um, for the earlier cohorts, 71% exceeded their mother's earnings. Um, uh, for the more recent one, that was 62%. Um, and that probably relates um, you know, to the increase in, uh, in work among, among women over time. Um, it was much easier to, uh, to exceed your mother's earnings um, if your mother was in a cohort where you know, there was a lot of part-time work and a lot of non-work. Uh, okay, very quickly, family income mobility for men. There, we're looking at modest declines in mobility. Um, the IRA may have increased uh, modestly, um, meaning that mobility may have fallen. Uh, in the PSID, the change wasn't statistically significant, went from about 0.49 to 0.55. Uh, again, that's, that's cohorts that were born from 1952 to 59 versus cohorts that were born in 1976 to 83. Um, when I look at family income, I'm able to bring in the National Longitudinal Surveys. Um, the, the NLS doesn't have information on parental earnings, at least not across the, uh, the range of cohorts that I wanted to look at. Um, so here I can introduce a uh, second set of estimates from the NLS. Um, there, the IRA increased um, also um, from 0.23 to 0.31 um, between cohorts born in uh, 1949 to 1951 versus cohorts born 1982 to 84. 
um, upward mobility to the top fourth and downward mobility from the top fourth uh, fell in both data sets over time over the long run. Uh, in the PSID, uh, it went from 0.57 to 0.48, uh, which would suggest uh, an increase in mobility, but that uh, wasn't statistically significant. Um, and it's only a three-point drop if you adjust family incomes for uh, for family size. In the NLS, the change was from 0.21 to 0.26. It's actually an increase in the IGE, which means less mobility over time, uh, but that wasn't statistically significant either. Um, and then finally, uh, the likelihood of exceeding parental income uh, was unchanged um, in my data, but again, it probably did fall, uh, which is what the Chetty team uh, found because of this measurement issue. So I found in the PSID, it was flat about 47% um, instead of the Chetty results indicating that it fell from 80% to 53%. And then in, in, in the NLS, I found that uh, it went from 51% to 53%, which was not statistically significant either. Um, and then finally, family income uh, mobility for women. Um, those are, are kind of, I think, the clearest uh, evidence of declines over time. Um, the IRA increased. Um, in the PSID, it went from 0.36 uh, to 0.50. In the NLS, it went from 0.29 to 0.39. So those are both um, you know, consistent stories uh, of, of a fall in relative mobility over time. Um, upward mobility from the bottom fourth to the top half uh, fell over time uh, in both data sets. Um, the IGE may have declined slightly, um, which would indicate um, that, uh, uh, I'm sorry, may have increased slightly, um, suggesting that mobility uh, may have fallen. Neither of those increases were significant uh, in the PSID or the NLS. Uh, and then finally, the likelihood of exceeding parental family income uh, was unchanged uh, or fell. Um, it, it fell if you use size adjusted income, um, but otherwise it was unchanged. Again, even the even the result where I find that it was unchanged um, probably masks you know a, a true decline in absolute mobility if we had measures of family income that went across all of childhood, um, because then you would find that uh, uh, that absolute mobility was much higher for the earlier birth cohorts, and so it's declined over time. Okay, that was a lot uh, to take in, um, uh, a lot to say, um, and I'll uh, I'll end it there, and hopefully we can get a, a good conversation going. All right. Well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate that uh, pretty detailed overview given the scope of of the uh, study here. Uh, and for attendees, I just want to make a note: um, you can ask questions via the chat feature, or if you raise your hands, uh, I will try to get to you, and, and we should be able to unmute you so you can ask it uh, via audio. Um, so start thinking about some of those questions, start thinking about what you'd like to, to ask Scott, but I'll kick it off. You know, you ran through uh, quite a few different um, parts of things that you obviously looked at very carefully. Um, you know, from my perspective, I remember seeing uh, the, the, the so-called Chetty bomb come out, you know, uh, back uh, a few years ago now. And uh, there were a lot of headlines that basically were saying, you know, the American dream is dead or it's on life support, it's fading. And uh, I remember you were pushing back on that a little bit at the time. Um, has your view changed? Or do you think that, um, you know, he, maybe there's something a little more to that now? Or, or I guess I can just ask it sort of flat out, you know, is the American dream on life support? Or how do you view that? 
Yeah, so I think there's a few different ways you can you can sort of approach the the Chetty research. First of all, I'm a giant fan of uh, of that whole research team. I think in general they've they've done really good work, um, but but I think they've gotten some parts of the story wrong. Um, I think my original objection to their research was just in the characterization of of absolute mobility being uh, being dead. Um, you know, their headline finding was that it used to be ninety percent of uh, of people exceeded their parents' income. If you were born in say 1940, and that that's fallen to about 50 percent um, for more reason for kids born in the early 80s, and I, you know, I, I sort of um, uh, interrogated their their methods as much as I could, and 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 came to believe that the decline they found they found was probably right, and uh, at, at least you know in direction. Um, and there's been subsequent research that I discussed in the paper that has confirmed. Um, that what they did was was actually pretty solid. Um, you know, they make some pretty strong assumptions in that paper to get the results that they get. Uh, but if anything, you know, subsequent res- research that I discuss has shown that you can make even stronger assumptions. You basically get the same conclusion. You can sort of assume that uh, that relative mobility in the United States um, has always and forever been at Scandinavian levels. And, uh, and and just sort of watch what happens to income growth without um, w- with the assumption that relative mobility is as high as it is in say Denmark and hasn't changed. And you still basically get you know this this decline over time in absolute mobility. Um, however, at the time, you know I argued that fifty percent that the levels were probably too low um, uh, for the more recent cohorts that if you looked at their own paper and you did things like used a better measure of inflation and you adjusted incomes for family size, uh, uh, that, that, that more likely the, the, the level of absolute mobility was, was closer to 70, maybe even 75% than, uh, than 50%. And then in part one of the primer, uh, when I did my own results using the PSID, uh, I, I found that it was more like 75%. Um, so I, I think I've been pretty consistently critical there. Um, and of course, you know, the, the headline that like only 50% exceed their, their parents' income, that's that's a much much catchier headline than uh, than it being 75%. And I, and I do think, unfortunately, the uh, economic uh, journalism uh, that, that was written about it uh, kind of was, was too dour. Um, in this latest paper, you know, I, I think I've, I've I've sort of concluded that the that while there was a drop over time in absolute mobility, that it was probably smaller than what the Chetty team uh, suggests. In the sense that, uh, if you sort of thought about the income, you know, we th- we think a lot in, in economics about lifetime income rather than just measuring income in a single year. If you thought about uh, income over an entire childhood, um, whether whether kids are able to exceed that or not. Um, then because fewer kids would have would have exceeded that in these earlier birth cohorts, um, then were able to exceed uh, their their parents' income uh, sort of before income growth really took off, uh, you would find you know a flatter a flatter trend over time. still a decline, but but I but I do think it's probably been overstated. Okay, I think. I think overall that sounds like it's a little bit of relatively good news, um, at least uh, you know compared to some of the, the catchier headlines that you were mentioning. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask, you know, you're tracing uh, these trends in economic mobility. Um, 
one thing that's changed a lot in, in some of the earlier cohorts up to the more modern ones that you've been studying is the poverty rate, right? So poverty has also been this, this other piece of the puzzle out here. And that, you know, maybe unlike some of the economic mobility statistics, that one really has changed a lot. So maybe uh, could you briefly cover how that's changed and then sort of tie that into how you see that fitting in with this economic mobility data in terms of how that should shape our understanding of kind of the more full picture? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think the contrast is really interesting because um, most researchers uh, who, who study poverty trends uh, would agree that, that poverty has fallen quite a bit over time. Um, now, you'll get disagreement about why that that is, the extent to which it's uh, the expanded safety net um, versus, you know, in the last 30 years, uh, a safety net that has promoted work um, and independence, um, how much of it is just, um, you know, income growth and uh uh, economic growth, raising incomes over time. Um, all of those, I think, are important pieces of the story, but uh, but but poverty has fallen a lot over time. I mean, the uh, I think the best numbers I've seen come from Rich Burkhauser uh, and uh, Kevin Corinth and, and some other scholars on, on that team who basically argue that, you know, if, if the poverty rate in um, 1963 was 19.5%, which is what the official poverty rate was back then, and you use a consistent definition of income um, and, and a consistent uh, poverty threshold adopted, uh, updated for uh, the increase in the cost of living, that 19.5% falls to 2.5% um, today. So really dramatic. You know, I've done research showing that even if you're sort of looking at the kids of single mothers, um, uh, child poverty among, among those kids is an all-time low today. Um, now, you contrast that with, you know, the, the relatively flat uh, trends in intergenerational mobility out of poverty, um, or you know, in, in some cases, you know, declining upward mobility out of poverty. Um, it, it to me, it, it says that you know, as, if policymakers want to reduce poverty, that may entail one one set of policies, um, but but they might not be expected to be the same set of policies that would increase upward mobility out of poverty. And you know, I think as recent as the pandemic, you know, we saw um, we saw an example of that. Um, we kept poverty rates basically at their historically low level um, during 2020 um, because of this massive infusion of of cash um, that happened in 2020 and and also in early 2021. Um, but on the other hand, what happened to kids in school? You know, we couldn't figure out how to get kids back in school or to make distance learning uh, uh, or learning from home safe. And so you saw these big, big uh, uh, learning losses, especially among kids in, in poor zip codes, uh, as the Chetty team has, has shown. So that's a case, you know, where we prioritized one thing and we succeeded there, but uh, but we took our eye off something else, you know, thinking, I guess, that that reducing poverty was also going to be good for upward mobility. And um, and I, I just don't think that's a very strong, strong case at all. Now, I, I should say that this is a little complicated because nearly all of the mobility research that we have um, is looking only at a limited set of transfers um, and it's generally pre-tax incomes. Um, and that's really sort of a function of, of, of kind of data uh, weaknesses that are out there. Um, there's literally only been, you know, for US studies that I can think of two or three that, uh, that try to incorporate taxes or that try to incorporate more transfers. It's possible if we had better 
income measures in our mobility studies that we would find a different trend. But I don't I don't think we would actually. I've I've actually looked at uh, trends in market income uh, mobility, which is you know take out all transfers um, in the PSID and the NLS. There are cash transfers that are included in that income measure, unemployment, social security, um, uh, welfare, cash welfare benefits, um, SSI, disability benefits, those sort of things. If you take all those out, um, you, you don't you don't see a trend that looks much different than uh, than what I presented to you. Mm. OK, well, we do have one question uh, in the queue here from uh, John Mozina. So people often move from one city or state to another to take advantage of economic opportunity in a particular place at that point in time. Do you see any connection between what you're seeing in economic mobility trends and the multi-decade fall in internal migration rates within the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I wrote a report a few years ago um, when I was at the Manhattan Institute. It was called When Moving Matters. Um, which was sort of a, uh, a compromise title because I wasn't I wasn't persuaded moving I wasn't persuaded moving did matter for uh, for, for intergenerational economic mobility, um, but I, I tried to look at the relationship between residential mobility trends and in economic mobility trends, and uh, boy I'm not even recalling what I found. You get to a certain age and you start uh, forgetting what what you found in, in previous papers. Um, I, I didn't think there was, I don't think there was a very strong link between the two. Um, but then again, I also sort of found residential mobility trends that were a little bit in contrast to this conventional wisdom, which is that it's fallen, that residential mobility has fallen quite a bit. And I, and I, you know, was using a measure that compared where you lived as an adult to where you were born and finding, you know, that, that the decline in residential mobility wasn't actually uh, that large either. Um, so I don't know, intuitively, uh, it makes a lot of sense, you know, over, over American history, you know, you think of West Western migration, you think of um, the great migration of African-Americans from the South to the urban North. Uh, there was also a similar migration of kind of rural Appalachian whites um, to, to cities in the North. Um, uh, over time, you know, it, it seems like migration has been really important for upward mobility. Um, but I don't know that anybody's really established that very well uh, in the data, um, partly because there are all these all these measurement issues. Um, so I don't I don't have a better answer than that. But. OK, well, I I want to kind of take it back a little bit and think about some of the sort of the building blocks of of economic mobility. Uh, so we know some things about this. Uh, social capital is obviously a big part of it, something you've worked on uh, quite a bit. Um, that seems to me, at least, at least partly a continuation from the old uh, sort of reformicon movement to kind of to kind of bring that back again. So I wonder, you know, when back when you were working on that stuff a little more in a concerted way, um, how have you revisited any of those ideas or proposals or uh, in light of this new research that you've been doing over the past few years, specifically on economic mobility? Um, when you think about human capital or social capital, some of that really seemed targeted by the reforms that the reformicons were proposing. Um, do you think that we sort of missed the boat on that, or would you would you say that you would have some different ideas looking back now? How do you how do you look at that? Yeah, I guess you know. So I think um, obviously I spent. <laughs> When I started uh, the, the primer, I was not working for the Joint Economic Committee uh, Social Capital Project. 
Uh, and I think about three months in, um, I ended up uh, taking that position. Uh, and so in, in, in the interim between part one and part three uh, of, of the primer, I've, I've spent a lot of time um, researching social capital. Um, and that certainly made me feel, you know, like more concerned about social capital trends. Um, you know, if people know my work, a lot of what I end up writing about is along the lines of you know, things are not as bad as you think. Um, things are not getting worse as much as you think. Um, most of the social capital trends that we've got good data for, you know, are, are don't look good um, and, and, and have definitely become more concerned about uh, those those sorts of problems over time, um, you know, declines in everything from obviously like the stability of family life and, and single parenthood and out of wedlock births, um, but also, you know, confidence in institutions, general trust uh, in each other, um, uh, participation in, in organizations, interactions with neighbors, even things like working with co uh Hanging out with coworkers after work, you know, has, has declined quite a bit over time. Church uh, church attendance, pretty much across the board, with a, with just a couple of exceptions. You know, things things look like they've they've gotten worse over time. So I, I do think those are important. Um, now, how important would they be for economic mobility? Some of them, I think, would be would be quite important. I think, in particular, you know, the, the family declines, um, uh, the, the the sort of increases in single parenthood um, over time. Uh, probably have been harmful. Um, that is is complicated to look at empirically um, because if you have a single parent, um, it's it's in some ways uh, easier, certainly easier to exceed uh, your your single parent's income than it is to exceed your you know your your dual parent parental income. Um, but but I think that's that's I think that's probably uh, really important for for intergenerational mobility. I do think, you know, where, where, where the mobility research should go uh, next is, is getting a better handle on what the most important factors are for, uh, for increasing intergenerational mobility. I think the Chetty team uh, did everyone a great service by kind of running these correlations and, and sort of showing, you know, here are the top five things that are correlated um, with, with intergenerational mobility. They even have a subsequent paper where they try to correlate uh, these, these various um, factors with the causal effect um, of a place uh, in terms of economic mobility. Um, that, that paper was a lot more technical, didn't get as much attention as, as their first paper, but in some ways it's, it's more rigorous from a, from a causal perspective. Um, but really at the end of the day, you know, when I, when I worked at Pew on the economic mobility project, um, you know, over a decade ago at this point, people were always asking us, you know, what are the top three things to promote upward mobility? And that, and, and I don't think we have a research base that really lets us say that with any kind of confidence. Um, so that's, that's a real gap um, uh, in our understanding of mobility. Well, on that cheery note, um, I do <laughs> think, um, you know, you wouldn't know that given the uh, proclamations that we hear uh, from a lot of, you know, contemporary politicians that kind of on either side who are sort of, uh, it feels like we're sort of feeling our way around this problem a little bit, but we're still, like you mentioned, we're still kind of empirically in the dark. Um, you know, some things we do know, right, though, so like the role of education, some things we can we can sort of hint at. So um, what, what would you feel most confident about saying is sort of the, the building block of economic mobility? 
upward economic mobility? Yeah, I mean, to my mind, if we're concerned about upward mobility uh, of poor kids, which is really, you know, what what my you know biggest concern is in all of this, um, we have to deal with inequalities in early childhood uh, environments, learning environments. Um, kids start kindergarten with you know these these very large gaps uh, in test scores. Um, test scores at at age four or five or even younger, you know, are are much better measured these days than they were, you know, a generation or two ago. Um, and those gaps are are real and they're important um, and they persist. Uh, and and so, um, you know, I do tend to agree uh, with Jim Heckman that we ought to be focusing a lot on early childhood. Um, I, I don't. I, I guess I'm probably a little bit less optimistic uh, than Jim is about. Um, our ability to implement um, a, a successful national program, um, but I think we ought to be trying a lot harder than we are now. I think Head Start, you know, is is not is not a program that ought to make us wildly optimistic. Um, but I think we ought to be funding. I've proposed this in the past. Um, you know, funding heavily a, a, an office of opportunity in the White House that would seed local experiments. Um, uh, to, to, to reduce, um, learning gaps, um, when, when kids enter school and, you know, my pitch to conservatives would be 19 out of 20 things you try are not going to work. And, and that's actually going to like, if, if, if you, if you want more people to understand the limits of what government programs can do, um, you know, that will be demonstrated by a program like this, but we ought to also all, all be cheering, you know, and, and looking for the one out of 20 that do work, uh, which we could expand, you know, when Google uh, or MasterCard, you know, does all their A-B testing, you know, experimenting with different ways of marketing and uh, serving ads to people or whatever, 19 out of 20 times, like what they what they try doesn't really work. Um, but they're looking for the the one the the one out of 20 times that does work. And that's what that's really what we need to find. And it's an important enough uh, goal that that we ought to pump a lot of money uh, into it, knowing that uh, at the end of the day, a lot of it, you know, is not going to have a very good return. Um, so I would, I would focus on that. I would focus on, um, trying to reduce, uh, single parenthood, uh, which we don't really know how to do very well yet. Um, but I, you know, I've proposed a number of changes to social welfare policy, um, that potentially could, could move the needle there a bit. Um, those would probably be the, the two buckets that I'd, that I'd bank on the most. Yeah, seem like good places to start, even if, um, you know, maybe maybe what works in one place may not work in another. Um, so I guess we'll have to find that out. But um, I do want to move to we have another question here from uh, my colleague, Dr. Clay Rutledge. Uh, so I'm going to just I'll read it out loud here. So I know your focus is on economic mobility, but I'm curious if you think we are underemphasizing other indicators of human flourishing. For instance, a poor person today has a number of advantages or over even a rich person decades ago. New medicine, more access to college education, different technologies. In other words, have you thought about a broader approach to thinking about mobility? And uh, I'll just kind of add on to that question. I think it's in the same vein as, you know, a lot of the economic mobility uh, measurements are focused on income level. Uh, rather than say, um, you know, other quality of life sort of style indicators. So I guess my another kind of way to think about that question might be is, you know, should we 
should we be caring less about economic mobility uh, as as other indicators um, that are important to us uh, get better? Yeah, I mean, these are really good questions. Um, I guess I'd, so first to take Clay's uh, question, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think mobility indicators don't tell you everything that's relevant about, um, you know, how well the nation is doing or how well policy is doing. Um, you know, it, it just in the same way that that poverty is at an all-time low, median household incomes are, are at an all-time high, median earnings and median hourly wages for men and women are both basically at all-time highs. Um, you know, the, the growth for men has not been as strong as it has been in, in earlier decades, but uh, but nevertheless, um, you know, people are better off than uh, than Americans have ever been, um, uh, and. And so that's something to celebrate and to and to care about, apart from um, either relative mobility or or absolute mobility. Um, I talk about in in uh, I think a couple different places in the primer, you know, where in regard to absolute mobility, you know, there 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 is there's probably a trade off there between uh, between um, sort of income levels and absolute mobility. Um, in other words. Uh, even though uh, kids born in 1940 had more absolute mobility than than kids born today will, um, very very few of us would 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 trade right. We would, very few of us say, "Oh, I would, I'd rather have the 90% chance of doing better than my parents, um, but but being born into the depression um, than being born today and and having you know maybe a, a 65% chance of doing better than my parents." Um, similarly, you know, it's it's almost certainly the case that China, you know, is a very poor country uh, that's experienced rapid development, has had more upward absolute mobility than the United States has. But um, would we trade places um, and, and sort of wish to have been born uh, in rural China so that we could have had that great upward mobility? And then and then the last example would be, you know, that poor kids have more uh, absolute mobility than rich kids do. Um, because, you know, when your parents are very poor, it's easier to exceed um, that income uh, than when your parents are very rich. But we would not trade places, those of us who were fortunate not to be born poor. Um, we wouldn't say, boy, I wish I had been born poor so I'd, so I'd had better absolute mobility. Um, so it's definitely, you know, there, there, there are different facets to think about. Even the metric of intergenerational mobility, this is something I talk about in part one of the primer, you know, is an imperfect proxy for opportunity. I think when I talk about mobility, I'm sort of thinking of it as a, as a measure of opportunity. Um, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case, right? We don't actually know what the most just intergenerational mobility level would be um, because people's preferences differ. Um, income is not the only thing that matters to people. Uh, but, you know, what I will say is that, um, you know, the way that mobility is patterned in the United States, in particular, the big um, black-white gaps in intergenerational mobility, you know, unless you're prepared to sort of come up with a story about uh, why it is that, that um, you know, one in five uh, African-American adults is in their third generation of being in the bottom fifth, while that's true of only one in 20 uh, white adults. Um, unless you can come up with a theory about how that's just reflecting different preferences, um, then I think we need to, to really worry uh, about mobility uh, gaps of, of those sorts. Okay. Well, I think 
that's probably uh, where we'll have to sort of start to close it um, for for today. Uh, I just want to remind everyone you can see the full report at uh, www.archbridgeinstitute.org. And I do want to kind of close here with one question, uh, Scott, one final question. for people who are maybe you know on the state level, policymakers or on the local level, uh, people who are very involved in their communities, um, but maybe they don't uh, have a lot of time to dive into some of the more detailed academic literature. What what's sort of the one big takeaway um, that you would want them to know about economic mobility, sort of as it stands right now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the thing that I would emphasize is that so much. Um, of the evidence out there is is just a lot more complicated um, than than what people hear about. Um, it would be much nicer if it was a cleaner story. Um, I would have I would have had to spend much less time and many few words um, describing the results if it were true. But it really is just a very complicated story. I think that if if people are thinking about well, what is the the intergenerational mobility problem in the United States? Um, I would encourage them, in addition to reading the, the three parts of this primer that I wrote, um, to, to read uh, the two papers that I wrote with Richard Reeves um, and, and some other colleagues uh, that are on black-white mobility differences. And there, I think, you know, it's just a clear, that is a clear story where there are just very large um, uh, upward mobility gaps between whites and African-Americans um, that are longstanding uh, you know, 60, 60 years after uh, the civil rights movement uh, sort of peaked, um, we've not made a ton of progress on those metrics. Uh, and, and that's really something uh, that's shameful and that, and that is clear cut. And that we, if the solutions aren't clear cut, the problem is and that we ought to be directing uh, a lot more attention to that. All right. With that, Scott, thank you very much for being with us today. And uh, I hope that we can kind of continue the conversation uh, another time. Thanks very much, Ben. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. 